We're going to be back in uh, the letter of 1 Peter tonight. And tonight our, our study is going to focus on verses 6 through 12. That'll be kind of where we're going to focus our, our time together. We noticed verses 3 through 5 a week ago. And so get my Bible open and get us set up and we'll, we will get back into that. I want to begin tonight by reading uh, those verses from the text. And you remember last week we were talking about in the greeting, there's this blessing uh, in the letter, but it's, it's about reminding them of what they have and reminding them of salvation, reminding them of an inheritance that is theirs, and, and the idea that it's protected by God uh, through faith. And so then when you get to verse 6, the Bible says, in this, talking about that salvation, that inheritance, that promise, you greatly rejoice... Even now, or even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than the gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, or into which angels long to look. And so tonight we'll spend some time on this section of the scripture uh, and talk in the beginning, verses 6 and 7, about again this reminder of us original readers there and us today having a proper perspective on trials. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now, sometimes when we read these letters, I don't know if it happens with you, but sometimes it'll happen with me. You read something and it seems as if there is a recurring theme going on. It seems kind of familiar, it seems kind of repetitive, One thing we need to do as we read the New Testament, even if we've read this in another place, if we've read it in another letter, when we see repetition, what that ought to do is remind us of importance. And so in other words, if we see, okay, there goes God again talking about suffering, well, I need to remember that it's probably pretty important that He talks about suffering. And if I'm thinking, well, there goes God again remembering or or wanting me to remember the need to think about heaven a lot, well, I need to remember that it's probably pretty important that I think about heaven a lot while I'm here on earth. Because we realize sometimes in the moment of pain and in the moment of suffering, and maybe it's happened to us, uh, sometimes we may misunderstand our pain. We may lose perspective. And all of us at one time or another have made a decision where we really weren't thinking about heaven when we made that choice. And so we need these repetitive reminders and we see those things going on here in 1 Peter. Now, again, what kind of trials are being talked about? We said this last week. At this point for these original readers, probably not imprisonment, probably not torture right now, but it may well be ridicule in town. 
It may be ostracism from the community. And as you think about the idea that, you know, maybe it's economic. It may be that you take your stuff to the marketplace and you're ready to sell your stuff in the marketplace, but because you're a Christian, nobody's buying from you. It may well have been an economic hardship that's happening because you're a Christian. You think about, and we talk about from time to time, our need for unity. You think when those Christians were being ridiculed, you think when those Christians were suffering in whatever way it was, you think that brought them together? Remember the old westerns, if you're watching an old cowboy movie, the thing that would happen when you're under attack in a western is you would circle the wagons. We used that phrase. The idea was we're going to circle up, we're going to come together, and we can protect ourselves that way. I would like to think that these Christians probably became very close because of what was happening in that way. And then the Scripture says, the verse says in verse 6, for a little while, if necessary. It's interesting because I usually use the New American Standard. It is regarded as one of the more literal translations, but as I was reading and studying for this lesson, uh, one of the things I read was talking about the idea that the translation uh, there where it says, if necessary might not actually be the best translation. In fact, one, one scholar took the idea that it might be better to read that um, for a little while because this must be. Why do trials come? If you turn over just a few pages to 1 John, I think there is a reminder there. There's some insight from John about why trials must happen. And John is talking about what happened with Cain and what happened with Abel, and we alluded to that in our Sunday morning last week. But he says in verse 12, "...not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Why was there evil? Why did Abel suffer?" Because his, talking about Cain's deeds, were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So in other words, uh, well, Dwayne Warden wrote about this. He said, Trials for Christians are a, necessary, are a necessity because the world hates those who aspire to holiness. He says they're not of divine necessity in the sense that God has determined that trials accompany Christian living. It's just this idea that when we try to do right, some people are not going to like that. You think about being in school. And maybe you were in a class when you were young where there was somebody in your class that got labeled the teacher's pet. And there were some students maybe who really tried to buddy up to the teacher. But if you think back, in a lot of cases... Often, wasn't it just a student who was trying to be a good student and who was rewarded because they were trying to be a good student? And sometimes when you're trying to do the right thing, other students look at you in a kind of a negative way. I think it's that same principle here. When we try to do right, people who don't want to do right, they they may give us some problems because of that. Then he says in verse 7, getting back to 1 Peter... The beginning of verse 7 says, so that the proof of your faith, or in other words, the genuineness of your faith, talking about, uh, he, he puts a value proposition in front of us. The, the, the purity or the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A, a value preposition here. Your faith is more valuable 
than gold. Gold, which would have been the most precious or one of the most precious things that you could possess physically. He says your faith is more valuable than the gold. And then he does another little thing here with the meaning. How did you purify gold? Well, you would heat it. You put the gold through fire. When you heated the gold, it would, it would burn off the impurities so that after you'd heated it, then you had pure gold. And he comes back and he says, with your faith, these trials that you go through when you suffer in these ways, it's like taking gold and purifying it. What's happening with your faith, these trials, that's heating your faith up. It's getting the impurities away so that your faith can be tested, it can be genuine, it can be pure. The question is, when trials come, whatever they may be in 2015... Is that the mindset that we take toward walking through a valley? That this valley is purifying my faith? Because joy in the face of suffering is actually counterintuitive, right? It's not normal to be joyful when we suffer. Uh, Fred Craddock said this, he said, Suffering in and of itself is not redemptive. Suffering has to be interpreted, and this is difficult. We enlist others to help because uninterpreted pain is the most unbearable. But then he says, but not all interpretations are equally helpful. In other words, you might have some friends like Job trying to explain your life to you, and some of Job's friends weren't explaining his life very well for him. And so sometimes we've got to be careful who's in the inner circle trying to explain our pain for us. We need to make sure that our, our, our explanation of pain is always biblical. But he says proper interpretation is valuable in the refining process, that purifying process. That I want a pure faith. I think about my friend JT who lives in South Alabama. He's a bivocational minister and he's got this beautiful family. But his wife has battled health issues. He's got a teenage daughter who has fought battle after battle after battle and surgery after surgery after surgery. Uh, They've been to the Mayo Clinic. I'm sure they can get in the car and go to Mayo without the first need of a GPS. In fact, at one point they were up there so much that uh, the church, the Lord's Church near Mayo Clinic was looking for a preacher and and my friend JT had been there so much that he actually got in the school to start trying to help them find a preacher. But his attitude, understanding what trials do and the proper way to view them, that's what I... Now, he's not suffering. They're not suffering because they're Christians, but as far as taking pain and taking suffering and having the right mindset toward it, he'll post something about what's going on. And at the end of the post, it's always a call to prayer, but then almost always it will say at the end, God is good. And my friend JT, I don't know if I was walking the pathway that he's walking, if my mindset could be like his. But he's an inspiration to me. And when I think about what First Peter's saying here, he comes to my mind. The second thing that we want to talk about is the idea of remembering Jesus. And if you notice... Right there at the end of verse 7, talking about faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Maybe a weird reference here. I, I don't know at your house if there are any movies that you watch regularly at Christmas time, but one of the ones that we always are going to watch as a family at some point during the holidays, we're always going to watch uh, The Polar Express. You know, we got started watching that when the kids were young, and we've just kind of continued with it. But there's a scene in that where the train has arrived at the North Pole. And you've got all the elves out there and you've got all the children that have been brought on the Polar Express and they're all there and it's time for Santa to come out. And if you've watched this movie, you kind of remember it and everybody's excited and the, it's, he, Santa is being revealed again. And the doubter kid that they've brought to the North Pole, as Santa makes his appearance, you hear him saying, you know, I can't see him, I can't see him. And finally he does. I don't know what it's going to be like, but you think about the Jesus being revealed and the praise and the glory and the honor. And Peter is calling to mind this relationship that his readers have with Jesus. And really, we ought to identify with what he's writing here in a, in a very strong way. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How many people are there that you maybe in your life in one way or another where you've never experienced that person with one of your five senses? In other words, you've never been in their presence physically. Uh, you know, you think of sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing. How many people in your life have you not experienced with one of your five senses yet you still love them? Because I'm going to guess that the answer is not very many. Normally, we have to have a relationship that involves the five senses if we're going to love someone, if we're going to be close to them. And you think about how powerful the senses are in helping us remember. And we'll take just one. Take the power of, of smell. There may be a certain food, when that food is cooked and you smell that food being cooked, it may take you back to grandma's house. It may take you to a certain place. It may take you to a certain time. I'll illustrate one this way. Uh, there is a perfume called Lauren. It's very distinctive. And if I ever smell that perfume, that reminds me of my friend Diane. We were friends in college. We didn't date. It was nothing like that. But uh, we are still friends today. But that perfume, because that's what she wore, if I ever smell Lauren perfume, I think of my friend Diane. Because the smell, uh, the sense of smell is so powerful. Jesus is being called to mind for Peter's audience, but they could not remember Jesus with the five senses in the way Peter could. Now Peter, you know, Peter had been with Jesus. The sermons, the failures, the big moments, all the things. We talked about that when we kind of overviewed Peter's life. Peter had the, the use of his five senses to remember Jesus. There are probably certain places he would go and there would be a memory or there was maybe a food he would eat. There, there, there were ways he could remember Jesus that his readers could not. And it was evident in his life and his ministry. There's an interesting verse in Acts chapter 14, or excuse me, Acts chapter 4. This is about 30 years before he's writing what we're reading in 1 Peter. And it's Peter and John before the Jewish leadership. And the Bible says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So it played out in Peter's life. People knew that he'd been with Jesus. But he says to his readers and to us, you love him. 
and you believe in Him, you've got faith, even though you haven't experienced Him with your sight. And so for us, the experience is different, but that doesn't mean that the experience that we have with Jesus isn't real. The experience is just different. We love Him and believe in Him because of what, we learn, what we've learned and what's been revealed and the fact that we're studying a book that's, that's written by 40 people over 1,500 years and it doesn't contradict itself and, so we have to, and, and the prophecies are fulfilled and so we know the book's real. So we know Him because of what we've read and because of what we've been told. Isn't that what faith is all about? We were talking about faith this morning. Because he says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so in calling to mind Jesus, Peter reminds us of of another aspect that should help Christians who are suffering, suffering because they are Christians. He says, uh, he reminds them down there, as you remember Jesus, there's a little word at the end of verse 11. He says, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. If I'm suffering as a Christian... The suffering of Christ really ought to be in my mind and the suffering of Christ really ought to be motivational to me if I want to get my mind right about what I'm going through during this time on earth, which may be really insignificant in light of what Jesus went through. I need to remember that the suffering of Jesus is what has made this living hope even a possibility for me. That's why in verse 8 he says, You greatly rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. See, the non-believer is going to find it really hard to understand the faith of a believer. And likewise, the believer may have trouble expressing the Christian joy in terms that the unbeliever can even understand. After all, the Christian has chosen a more difficult path. The Christian has chosen to put faith in someone that has not been experienced with the five senses. A Christian has chosen potential rejection from people to be right with God. And yet that non-believer, when they look at us, they're going to see joy in spite of all of that. The suffering of Jesus is often called remembrance. In the very next chapter, when we get over there, chapter 2, verse 21, Peter is going to call to mind for his readers the suffering of Christ. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. The purpose to which we're called isn't to suffer. We may suffer because of the purpose that we've embraced. The, the idea, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so, my purpose isn't to suffer. My purpose is to follow Christ. And if that brings some suffering with it, then I'll walk through that. And we didn't drill down on it in verse 6. We kind of skipped over it for the moment. But when you go back to verse 6, where we began, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... We didn't drill down on for a little while... In the grand scheme of eternity, if we suffer here, if we suffer for a day, if we suffer for a year, if we suffer like my friend JT's family is suffering where it, is, it seems to just be prolonged and it seems to have become a part of day-to-day life, in terms of forever, it's for a little while. 
It's also a common theme in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, right after the hall of faith, us being called to faith, talks about the cloud of witnesses, it talks about throwing off the encumbrances, it talks about running the race with endurance, it talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then says, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says, for consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. In other words, hostility by sinners against Jesus. Jesus endured suffering. And He says, you think about that, and then you think about your walk, and when you think about what He did, then the end of that verse says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so this idea of the suffering of Christ being called to mind in helping us with our walk, that's common. And he says it's worth it if you want to stay in the race. As we stay focused on this relationship we have with Jesus, in doing so it helps us not lose heart. The last thing we talk about tonight comes from verses 9 through 12. That idea again of always being focused on the outcome. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And that ends a big long sentence that started back up in verse 6. And so then in verse 10 it begins this discussion of what went on with the prophets. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These verses are very much an upper story reference if you want to think back to our theme for Sunday morning, the story. There's some lower story, day-to-day life suffering that goes on, and through that, God is actively working to accomplish His purpose through the course of historical events. And one of the things that's noted in here, the prophets were looking ahead, serving these original readers. The prophets were looking ahead, serving us. question kind of is, which prophets... And I don't know what happens with you, but we think in terms of prophecy in Old Testament being fulfilled in New Testament. And I think there's something very normal for us when we read about prophets. We normally think about guys in the Old Testament. But there were prophets in the New Testament as well. And sometimes maybe we don't focus on that idea as much as we could. But Ephesians 4.11 talks about giving some to be prophets. 1 Corinthians 12.28. When you go to 1 John 4 verse 1, there's this idea that the church was aware of the idea that there were prophets and some of them were true and there was there would be some of them who were false. Uh, 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's also a bit of a translation question that comes up here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. What I read and what we actually drilled down on and talked a little bit about that last phrase as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, there's some scholars who make the case that rather than it may be being the sufferings of Christ, 
The proper translation may well be sufferings for Christ. Now we know Christ did suffer, and I went ahead and talked about it there because in chapter 2 he's going to call to mind the sufferings of Christ, and it, so it's, it's biblical. But think about the idea of the sufferings for Christ that prophets might have been calling these Christians or talking to these Christians about the idea, you're going to suffer some things. Sufferings you're going to go through for Christ. It may well be the right translation. New Testament prophets were often very involved in predicting events that were going to occur. Uh, Turn back to Acts chapter 11. I just want to try to illustrate this with a prophet named Agabus. Acts chapter 11, and I want to notice verses 27 and 28. We're going to notice two references to this guy as a prophet. Acts 11 verse 27, it says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would be certain or excuse me that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And so you've got a prophet standing up and making a prediction. A little bit more about the same guy. Turn to Acts the 21st chapter and notice verse 10. It says over there in verse 10 of Acts 21 As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so he shows up and he's he's pronouncing troubled days ahead for the Apostle Paul. And he does that as a prophet. So the question is, do we have it better? And I think we do have a better vantage point. We're not sure for I mean, whether it's Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets that are being referenced here in this passage, the idea that he wants the original readers to understand and us to understand is they're trying to serve us in helping us understand some things. And I would make the case that we've got a better vantage point than the original readers had We live with the blessing of knowing the whole story. We talked about that this morning. Do we sometimes have questions? Yes, we do. Are there things that we sometimes don't understand? Yes, there are. But the the, the vantage point of having the entire Bible in hand is so nice because one of the things we don't have to deal with in 2015, you don't have to have a guy named Agabus come in here and stand up and say, hey, I've got a word from God. And then let's try to figure out whether it's true and whether he really does have a word from God. It is nice that we don't have to deal with prophets in that way today like the early church did while they were waiting to have the complete revealed will of God. So I would make the case our vantage point is better. It's kind of interesting to me that they were revealing things that even the angels longed to look into. That's that's just... We don't know exactly what... The angels wanted to know, but it's interesting to me. So we've got a great vantage point. As we finish tonight, I would just ask the question, as we think about our salvation, 
the blessing that it is, the inheritance that we talked about it being last week. And as we think about the idea that we may walk through some suffering, we may walk through some valleys, we may walk through some things that hopefully serve to purify our faith in the same way that gold is purified by heat. As we think about those things... We think about a faith and, and a relationship with Jesus even though we haven't seen Him. We love Him anyway. We believe in Him. Our faith is there. How much time do we actively spend thinking about heaven? The realization that day when our salvation is realized, that day when Jesus comes back and there's, there's praise and there's glory and there's honor as He comes back and, and He takes us home. How much time do we spend actively thinking about that day? One preacher said, Obsessed people orient their lives around eternity. See, that's one really good self-exam question. Is my life oriented around eternity? In other words, eternity's in the middle and everything about my life revolves around the idea that I'm thinking eternity. Because sometimes it's almost... Maybe we treat it like the buffet line where I've got that plate with all the little compartments on it and I want to fill my life up with a compartment of this and a compartment of that and I know my plate's really not full and my plate's really not complete until there's some heaven on it and so I want some heaven on my plate but that's kind of different than orienting my life with eternity in the very middle. And I believe that's what we're called to as we read this letter. I don't know what lies ahead and if... If you're on social media, one thing I've noticed more and more, I notice more Christian suffering going on in our world. It seems like constantly there's something coming up. It's either an article or it's a picture where you don't really want to read the whole article because it's not happy stuff. And I don't know what will happen for us. But whatever we walk through... Whatever these Christians were walking to or through, the, the key was the proper perspective on what this life throws at us. The idea that yes, we may suffer for a little while, but that doesn't compare to eternity. We're going to sing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, and if you aren't comfortably leaning on those everlasting arms tonight, you have an opportunity to make a change in your life. If your faith isn't what it needs to be and you want us to pray with you and for you, we're happy to do that. If you haven't begun your walk with God and you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we would love to assist you with that. But if you have a need tonight, we'd love for you to let that be known while we stand and while we sing.